0: Well, good morning, my church family. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, we are cruising through our series, Freed by Christ. Freed by Christ. And we've got a, a good, rich passage in front of us today, so we're going to pray and then we're going to get right to it. So would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you that you uh, are good. You are good. Um, You are not a God who is unkind, a capricious, a God who is disinterested or vindictive. Uh, You are a God who is good. Um, So we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God worthy of worship. You are a God who knows that we are not good, and in your kindness you sent your Son, and you have reconciled us to you. It's been your initiative, your work, your grace, your mercy, your payment, your forgiveness. So we are blessed by your goodness, God, and we reflect on that this morning in song. and As we study the scriptures together, as we give and all of the practices and liturgies of the church, uh, we mean to work upon our hearts and our affections so that we would love you for the God that you are. You are good, and I pray that would sink in this morning afresh. Uh, So teach us from your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 here, uh, as we've been working through this, Paul has been defending the legitimacy of the gospel message that he preaches, and he has been defending the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry, uh, particularly to the Gentiles, Uh, and he has been uh, defending the legitimacy of his authority as an apostle. Uh, So these are some of the things that we've seen in the first couple of chapters of of Galatians here, and he's been very systematic in how he has done this. Uh, Early on, we, we saw how Paul shared that his gospel, the gospel that he preaches, was revealed to him by Christ directly. In other words, he did not go to Jerusalem and cobble together this gospel with the fraternity of other apostles. He heard it from Christ, and he went quickly to ministry and proclaimed it. And, uh, but it is of him. It is of Christ. That's the gospel origin. And he demonstrated his independence, again, that he went out initially. He didn't just go to the other apostles to uh, verify everything initially, but he, for 14 years, was sort of out doing his own thing. Uh, and there was a sense of independence in that. But then we saw also that after doing that for 14 years, when he comes back to Jerusalem and meets with the other apostles, they ratify the gospel that he has been preaching and his ministry to the Gentiles, and he himself as a legit apostle. And so there was solidarity that he found with them. And this week, we really focus on uh, the equal authority that the apostle Paul has with uh, the others. Um, That is, he is not the JV apostle, right? He's not sitting on the bench. Paul's a starter. He's on the varsity team. He's got the same apostolic chops that the other guys have. He is one of authority. In order to demonstrate the rightful authority that he has consistent with the others, he tells a story where Paul exercises this this authority actually by confronting the apostle Peter when Peter was in the city of Antioch. Uh, now, Peter was one of the most prominent apostles in the early days of the church. I don't know if you knew that, but that's kind of important to understand what's going on here. He is frequently referred to as the first among equals. So he's kind of the big dog, right, on the apostolic team. Now, I want to I just stop and relate to some what we have seen Paul uh, doing here in the early parts of this letter. If you are one of these Galatian churches to whom this letter is written... And you're, you kind of see all of these ways that Paul is kind of positioning himself here. You might start to get a little bit nervous, right? We, we feel this same way conversationally with people. Let's say somebody calls you up and says, listen, can we get together to talk? You think, oh, what'd I do? <laughs> okay, all right, let's go somewhere. And then you're sitting there eye to eye, knee to knee, and they say something like, Listen, we've been friends for a long time. You're like, oh man, this is really going to hurt, right? Pretty much anything that starts with listen, you kind of don't want to. Um, and then they, maybe they move to something like this. I don't want to hurt you, but like I'm about to, you know. So we, we experience this relationally conversational with people. And you start hearing these kinds of prefaces, you know, this is going to be rough. This is going to hurt. And I think the Galatians are doing the same thing hearing this letter from the Apostle Paul, he's talking about his authority, his legitimacy, the gospel, all these kinds of things. And I think they're probably going, man, we're about to get whacked. He's going to smash us here. This is really going to hurt. And they'd be right. And that doesn't really start until chapter three, where he begins with the words, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is the red-faced, angry part of the the letter right there. So that's coming. but uh, So that's the good news. That's next week. He's still in the setup stage, right? He's still posturing, showing his credibility and his authority as an apostle, building his case so he can lower the boom. And that's kind of where we are. But there's a second part to sharing this story as well. The specific story that he shares of confrontation here is not just random or arbitrary, but rather the very issue that he confronted Peter about is the same kind of thing he needs to address with the Galatians. So Paul kind of gets to kill two birds with one stone here. He can cement his legitimacy and authority as an apostle, but he can also do it through a sharing of the same kind of story he needs to address with the Galatians here. Uh, And basically what he wants to bring to bear on their lives is this. How are you living with the gospel of grace? How are you living with the gospel of grace? Is it permeating every area of your life? Has it moved from a matter of mere belief to a matter of practice, even in the everyday things like eating and drinking and people we interact with? And so the big idea that I want you to take away this morning is this, we need to learn to bring all of life into alignment with the gospel of grace. And as we're going to see, that's going to require us to rehearse the gospel, to remind ourselves of what it says and of its application to our lives. Let's look at the passage here, Galatians 2.11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles To follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth. And not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified. By the works of the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith. In Christ Jesus. That we may be justified. By faith in Christ. And not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law. No one will be justified. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Great passage, isn't it? Man, there's some favorites in there. Verses you I wanna. <clears throat> First thing we see, again, is that Paul is asserting his equal authority with the other apostles. The fellow that's named here in this story, Cephas... Uh, we know as Peter. Uh, His original name is Simon. Jesus renames him Cephas in the Aramaic, which is the spoken language of the day. And in the Greek, it's Petros or Peter. So it's a little bit like reading a Russian novel, right? Everybody's got three or four names. Um, Or maybe a simpler way of stating it is like this. My daughter's name is Eleanor. The family calls her Ellie. I call her EJ. EJ. So, same kind of thing here. Uh, And I'm going to refer to Peter from from here on. I'm going to refer to him as Peter from here on out because that's how we're most familiar to him. But he's generally considered to be the leader of the apostles, especially at the time that this story occurs. Uh, Even during Jesus' public ministry, right? It was Peter, James, and John in that order. He's generally considered the first uh, among equals, kind of the captain of the team the outspoken and vocal leader, the first one through the wall, right? And then usually having to be picked up after the fact. Um, Actually, when we read the book of Acts, it's interesting. Peter is the prominent figure in the book of Acts and the expansion of the gospel until you get about halfway. And then right about chapter 13, it shifts, and the emphasis kind of drifts to Paul and to his ministry to the Gentiles. Um, So just just to kind of bring that uh, to your awareness here. And so, as that relates to our story, Peter's been the long recognized primary leader of the church and the Christian faith up to this point in time. He's the big dog, he's the point man. And this is really intimidating to the apostle Paul, right? No, <laughs> not even a little. And so, Paul confronted Peter's failures publicly, to his face, out loud. He really gets after him and he doesn't just it's not one of these things like Peter you know this tunic that you're wearing it's nice and all but it doesn't really go with the sandals <laughs> it's not a small thing it's not an insignificant thing he comes at him about a failure in his discipleship in his integrity in his leadership and he does it publicly um, and so I think, again, the Galatians hearing this letter as a congregation are probably thinking, okay, Paul, all right, we feel you. you, you got a little grouchy in you, what of it? What does it have to do with us? And there's really two reasons he brings this up. One, he wants to show that he has the guts to confront Peter, even Peter, and not just because Paul's a middle-aged guy who got a bad night's sleep, right? Right? He has the guts to confront him because he is a legitimate apostle of the same level, of the same caliber, not a JV member of the team. And then secondly, Peter's making the same kind of mistake as the Gentiles. So again, he gets to kill two birds with one stone here. The incident takes place in a city known as Antioch, which is primarily a Gentile city. And in order to really understand the dynamics of what's happening here, we have to kind of have a sense at least of what the relationship between Jews and Gentiles was like at this particular time. Um, Now, generally speaking, God-fearing Jews maintained and guarded what we would call ceremonial cleanliness, okay? And this isn't just about, you know, your daily shower or actually using soap or matters of hygiene or anything like this. Uh, This is about avoiding contact with certain things that could make you ceremonially unclean, like contact with the dead, or with blood, or with disease, or avoiding certain kinds of foods. Now, I think when we look at, Leviticus and some of these laws, some of these food laws, we think, what's going on here? Why is this important? Why is this a part of ceremonial cleanliness and whatever? And I don't want to get into all of that, and actually this is a conversation we're having in our home because some of it looks downright arbitrary, right? Why, not, why no shellfish? Shrimp are delicious, you know? That's really unfortunate. Uh, so some of it looks really kind of uh, arbitrary. But overall, what we should understand is it is protecting the reverence of the people for God and for worship. It is showing them to be distinct among the other cultures around them, particularly as other cultures practice pagan worship. And so their their aspects of distinctiveness, sometimes it was protecting them from some things, lots of different reasons, not a singular one. But overall, it was a way that uh, God-fearing Jews showed their singular devotion uh, to God, A way, almost like a wedding ring, saying, I'm his. And this is one of the ways that I demonstrate that. So in order for a good, devout follower of the law to make sure that they were ceremonially unclean, they would avoid contact with these things, particular foods, uh, and one of the things they would often do is they would also avoid general contact, even proximity to Gentiles, just because you don't want to risk the second-level contamination. They don't want to get their cooties on you. They've been doing other things. We don't want that. Um, I was picking up my son, Aiden at the airport a couple weeks ago, and... Um, this was about the time when the coronavirus was just taking off and we had more questions than answers and the numbers were just going up. Anyways, he was coming home from a conference on the East Coast and they actually shut down this youth conference one day early because one of the kids there had a sickness that was mimicking the, the signs of the virus. And so it was kind of a big deal and a scary deal. Anyway, so I'm at the airport. It's like 2 in the morning, 1:32 in the morning, picking him up. And while I'm waiting there, another plane comes in and cascading down the stairs you know at the gate there in the airport, heading down to the uh, the terminal, are uh, several passengers from Asia on a, you know on this other plane, and like no kidding, eighty percent of them are wearing masks and I 'm here at two in the morning like this is a this is a scary situation. This is not comforting right now with this virus going on, particularly from the place these passengers have come from, and so I kind of you know stood back with like hands in the pockets and you know call her up. And, I don't know if Aiden noticed, but I I did not offer to help him with the bag. (laughs) I tried very hard to touch nothing while I was there. And it was just, generally speaking, a little uncomfortable. Um, Aren't I a delightful person, you know? (laughs) I'm just being honest. That's how I felt. And, And this same kind of thing is sort of how Israel operated in relationship to the Gentiles. Now, the concern here for... Israel is not about disease or allergy or hygiene. Again, it's about ceremonial cleanliness so that they can be prepared to worship God. But sometimes it was carried out to the extreme or even to the absurd, like avoiding contact with the whole people group. And so in some moments of kind of smug superiority, the Jews would refer to Gentiles as Gentile dogs. Gentile dogs. Could be worse. They could be cats, right? <laughs> and dogs sounds bad enough. Uh, but the reference to dogs, you know, in, in your mind and mind is I think of I think of Huckleberry, my little cute chocolate lab at home with all of his quirks and weird things that he does, like the other night, jumping up on the couch and just sleeping there overnight when he's not allowed to be there, you know, just oh my little my my Huckleberry, you know, my little dog. That's not the ancient world's vision of a dog or understanding of one. Dogs in the ancient world were filthy, disease-ridden, mixed-bred, scavenging, predators, dangerous. Gentile dogs was not at all a compliment loaded with much more animosity than the way we might even hear it. But when God-fearing Jews embraced the gospel of grace... They learned to accept the fact that one is justified to God by faith. Not by works, not by observing the law, not ceremonial cleanliness, not segregation from others, so-called sinners. Justified to God by faith in Jesus and in his sacrifice on their behalf. And so as this began to be understood, the walls of segregation began to come down in the first century, although slowly. And we see a lot of this kind of filtered into Paul's letters, and uh, Ephesians is another example of that. This month, we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, and we remember his awesome ministry to our nation. And um, every year in February, when this comes up, I try to go back and listen to his speech again. I find it to be remarkable. And um, on one hand, you listen to the speech, and if you if you watch the video as I do, you see some of the images there, and you're reminded of things, uh, of the kinds of uh, boycotts, the busing boycotts, the fire hoses turned on people who were demonstrating, uh, signs of segregation, or even the real in print signs whites only, and you see those and you think, I can hardly believe it. On one hand, you, know, you look at it and you go, it's shocking that that's the way that things were. And so I feel two feelings on the one hand. One, boy, thank God, look how far we've come, right? We've moved from that. We have, praise God. But we're, we're not at a point of racial harmony in our nation, are we? So we have room to go. We have room to go. And so I'm bringing it up just to kind of relate to this fact that when we have predisposed practices, cultures, ways of interacting with one another, and they start to change, change takes time. And I would just just say, all you have to do in in the evangelical church is just look around and as the saying goes, the nine o'clock hour is still the most segregated hour of the week. Why doesn't that change? I don't know the answer to that, but it's slow and common. I can tell you this, though. One day when we're in heaven with the Lord, it's going to be wonderfully diverse. Every tongue, every nation, every tribe. It'll be sweet. But it takes time for old thoughts, cultures, patterns, behaviors to change. And we can relate to this from our our nation's own battle with civil rights. So this Jewish community is moving from seeing Gentiles as Gentile dogs to the point where we can sit down and have table fellowship because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a big move, and it's the gospel that is actually uh, perpetuating this move, and it's something that Peter himself has learned and is learning. Uh, So that even people like Peter are beginning to practice table fellowship with Gentiles and eat the foods that they once rejected. It's almost like watching a vegetarian eat a bacon cheeseburger for the first time, right? i trying to like this. There was some reticence just with the food itself. Uh, Now, I want to make something clear too. Peter knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was right, okay, and what God was doing forcing this integration with these people and taking down the restrictions of these food issues so that there would be no reason uh, that one would stay away from the other. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision of this where the Lord says, take and eat and call nothing that I have made unclean, right? So Peter knows this. The problem is that he wrongly withdraws his fellowship. It's even referred to as an act of hypocrisy because believing one thing, he's doing something else, he knows better, but he's acting inconsistent with his knowledge. Again, in this instance, Peter knows wholeheartedly that the gospel of grace is in effect, and yet he reverts back to other ways of interacting with people. He regresses relating to God and other people through laws, rules, and forms. Before It says in verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And so they acted as though the law were still in effect when it wasn't. Uh, And I want to sort of ask the question for our consideration Why? Why did Peter do this? Why did he retreat from full Christian fellowship with these these brothers? And the answer is right here in the text, isn't it? It's driven by what? Fear. It's driven by fear of appearances. He's simply afraid of what other people will think. Now, I will tell you that I can relate to this more strongly than you might actually appreciate. I'm a Christian leader here in town, Uh, small town, Fairbanks is a small town. You guys know this. And um, sometimes it can just be tough when people's eyes are on you all the time. And so I'll tell you, I'll give you an example from this past week of how I felt something like this. Um, So Amy and I split up dinners. Uh, She's working, I'm working. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, those are my nights to make dinner for the family. So Wednesday uh, was my night and I Usually means I go to Costco and find something that's half prepared, you know. <laughs> um, no shame, please. Uh, that's what I do, and uh, and so I get uh, a frozen lasagna and a few other things, and I'm walking out, and it's a little cumbersome, and so uh, the checker very conscientiously says, "Would you like a box to carry that all out?" And I said, "That'd be great." So they put everything in a box and hand it to me, and. I've got everything caddied up, and I'm walking out. And, of course, I'm running into several of you in the parking lot. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? You know, and I get home, and we make the lasagna and have a nice dinner. And we start tidying it up, and I've got the box sitting there at the top of the stairs ready to be taken down to the trash. And I look at it, and I realize it's it's like a 12-pack of bourbon bottles. (laughs) Uh, Who did I see? I'm just, hey, guys, how's it going? You know, like, boy, Pastor Eric's real happy. What, what is going on there? So I'm like thinking, I got to make some phone calls here or what, you know? I, so I live with this, and some of you do as well. You can live with, well, what are people seeing, and what are these appearances, and, and what fears do they create for us? Well, for Peter, this, this fear of appearance led to hypocrisy. He was afraid of the judgment of others over the truth of the gospel, which he knew to be true, which he had embraced, which he had proclaimed. And I was thinking about this, and what came to my mind this week was that fear is actually a regular visitor in Peter's life. Even when we first find him in the gospels, Right? when he's sitting in his fishing boat with Jesus after the miraculous catch of fish and he realizes this Jesus is God's Messiah. And it's fear that leads him to say what? Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. It was fear that drove Peter to be angry with Jesus when they were in the boat in the storm and Jesus is sleeping well. And it was anger and fear, or fear that drove him to be angry with him and to confront him about it. It was faith. In faith, Peter took a few steps out of the boat onto the water, and let's give him credit for that because none of us have done it, right? He took steps on water until he, seeing the waves and the wind, felt it again, fear, and his steps went through the water. It was fear that caused Peter to rebuke Jesus when Jesus announced his departure. It was fear that led Peter's overstatement to say that he would never leave Jesus, even if I have to die for you. It was fear that drove Peter to cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. This story always cracks me up. If there's a funny story in the scriptures, this is it. In the midst of a very serious moment, A whole crew, a crowd of people come to arrest Jesus with swords. Peter's armed. He's ready to go. And in his courage, he whips out the sword and he goes for one of the soldiers. No, he goes for the high priest's secretary's ear. (laughs) That's fear. It's like he's saying, I got the little guy. (laughs) That's me. I'll take him. In fear, Peter followed behind Jesus at a distance, right? Fear caused Peter to deny knowing Christ three times, even though it was predicted. It was also fear in John 21 that caused Peter to consistently understate his love and affection for Christ because he feared he couldn't be forgiven for his past failures. And... Here, it is fear of appearances that causes Peter to withhold grace from others. Fear is a regular visitor in Peter's life, and it almost is—it is almost always a prelude to sin. Which is amazing if you think about it. Um, because in fear, what we end up doing is we measure ourselves against something else, someone else, instead of seeing ourselves secure standing in the steadfast love of God. Fear fails to see the hand of God and the life of God and the grace of God poured out for us. Fear is a way of cowering in front of something that is a foe immediately upon us, but it fails to recall that our life is now hidden with God in Christ, right? And so the reality is I have a new identity now. I live from a new place. I have a new king. I have a new purpose. And it's not about me. It's about the kingdom of God, empowered by the king himself. I have no fear. I should have no fear. If there is fear, then apparently it's still about me a little bit, right? That's what Paul says later in the passage. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by fear. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so fear leads us to failure again and again and again. I've appreciated that song and the title especially of the song that we're hearing on the radio these days. Fear is a liar. It's a liar. If there's anything to be afraid of, it's fear, right? Right? We've heard that before. And so his action here actually, even though it's driven, it's driven by fear, it actually distorts the gospel and it misleads others. I think one of the really humbling things about this passage is it shows the impact that our behavior has around, on the community around us. We're reminded that we are not in an isolated faith or walking out a solo journey of faith. We're as a community of faith and we walk it out together as a family. And my actions affect you. And your actions affect me. So living in line with grace is something we do individually but also corporately together. And I want to look at the two common ways that I think all of us uh, fail to live life fully in line with God's grace. I think we will fall to one of two sides of this continuum. One or the other will be our weakness. And I just want to name them and expose them. One common way we fail... Uh, to live in line with grace, is that we fail to receive it and apply it to ourselves. We fail to believe it, embrace it, be secure in it, be anchored by it. And what this looks like is a person who is consistently hard on themselves, a lot of negative self-talk. They still beat themselves up on past mistakes, mistakes. They measure their relationship with God based upon their performance or lack of it. They judge their standing with God based on false metrics like how I feel or what I know or what I've done or what I've got or what I haven't got. One of the ways that we fail to live in line with grace is that we we fail to let it act upon us and to saturate us and to hold us secure in this steadfast love of God. We fail to receive it ourselves. That's one way. The other way that I think uh, we fail to live in line with grace is some of us fail to extend grace to others. We're good at letting it apply to us, not so good at extending it to others. We will often say something along the lines, maybe not out loud, but in our head we will say something like, well, they don't deserve grace. Yeah, that's the point. Grace isn't deserved. If we're waiting to meet it out until it's deserved, we've missed the whole point. It's no longer grace. It's merit. Grace isn't deserved. That's the whole point. And some of us can fail to extend grace to others. We might say some things like, well, they have tattoos. They drink alcohol. They're not very expressive in musical worship. They're not the standing, waving kind of folks. They work on Sundays. Their kids are loud. They haven't been baptized the same way I have. They don't belong to the same political party. They still battle with rough language. They have a kitten. (laughs) What we end up doing is we end up moralizing our preferences and we impose them upon other people. And when we do that, what we're doing is actually exporting our fears and putting them in their life. And holding them aloof from us and even from God. Failing to extend grace to others. Those are the two ways. Failing to receive it ourselves. Failing to extend it to others. Living in line with grace means that we recognize God's grace is every bit as available for you as it is for me. Some of us need to work on receiving grace as much as we will extend it to others. Others of us need to work on extending grace as much as we've gobbled it up for ourselves, right? I'm not telling you which one I am. Paul makes it abundantly clear here there's no reason for this kind of behavior. Peter is wrong, flat out wrong. He told him so to his face, in public, out loud, which is an example of public sin, public rebuke, private sin, private rebuke. Here's... Just a test case of it here. So I want to ask the question, how is it then that we grow in grace? Whether we need to learn to receive it for ourselves or whether we need to grow in extending it generously to others. And I think, quite frankly, what we need to do is we need to do what Paul does. The gospel of grace needs to be rehearsed, practiced. We need to be reminded of it. It needs to be restated for us verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Translation, double standard, dude. Not cool. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles... Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Do you think he means that part? Three times, he just drills it down, drills it down, drills it down. Justified by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Or maybe a few. No one No one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. In other words, there's no going back. There's no going back. This ship of the law had a hole in it. It sank. Let's not sail that same ship again. Let's not do that. We're not going to promote a false sense of security or set up false standards of faith. We're justified by faith in Christ. So how does Paul help Peter and Barnabas and these poor whipsaw Gentiles grow in grace to align their lives with this grace? He rehearses the gospel. He states it again so that they might get it, right? There's this... Old bit of shop wisdom that says you've got to destruct before you can construct, right? That's what Paul does. Let's tear down your false view here. We're not justified by the law. Now, I suspect that rigid Old Testament law keeping is probably not the primary temptation for any of you uh, leading to self-righteousness and vying against grace. I think there's probably plenty of things that we all do that sort of vie against grace, but it's probably not the rigid keeping of the Old Testament law, right? Because for starters, you're here on Sunday, and the Sabbath was yesterday. So if that were the case, you're here at the wrong place at the wrong time with your nose been out of shape, right? So uh, also, I suspect most of you had bacon at some point this week. We had BLTs last night, and they were delicious, <laughs> Uh, Some of you have worn 50-50 clothing, mixed fibers, and any number of other things that would have broken the Old Testament law. So probably the law as a substitute for grace is not the primary issue for you, Uh, but there are a number of things that we might put in place of grace in our life, right? Anything that creates a false sense of standing before the Lord is competing with grace. Anything... It creates a false sense of standing before the Lord. competes with His grace in our life. And this can be anything from your fitness, your appearance, your achievements, your success, your education, your stature in the community, the money you have or don't have, the network of peers that you have or don't have. Here's a big one for women, especially your moms. Yeah. (laughs) How your kids are doing, and what does that say about you, in the eyes of others, in the eyes of God? That is something, I think, that can stand in the way of, of God's grace. It's an imposition you set up. I heard this phrase a long time ago, and it's really stayed with me. It's this, anything that competes with grace is sin for you. Anything that competes with grace is sin for you. I don't remember who said it. I heard it a long time ago, and it stayed with me because it really rattled me, and it still rattles me. And it's still a grid through which to look at things in your life. Anything that competes with grace is sin to you. So having destructed sort of these false structures of security, we need to construct a structure that will hold, that will stand, in which we are secure. And it is in this one beautiful line that is just full of meaning and significance, that is this, we are justified by faith in Christ. Justified by faith in Christ. Uh, This word justified here is actually a financial term. Um, And this reminded me of something in our lives. Years ago when Eleanor was born, she's 14 now, but when she was born, we were sort of in between um, medical insurance and did not have good coverage at the time. So when she was born and we got hospital bills, it was like, ooh, that's a lot. And that's more than, quite frankly, we have. So they put us on a little payment program, which felt funny because we were making payments on our daughter. (laughs) Like she was a car or something, you know. You don't like being in debt, you especially don't like making payments on your daughter. Both of those feel wrong. And so I remember feeling very good when we went in with the last payment and gave it to them. And they gave me a receipt that said, you know, paid in full, which was great to see. You know, accounts justified. That's nice, especially because she's our daughter. She's a person. And I remember just thinking, okay, well, she's ours now. You know, I can't can't come and take her back. Sorry, you didn't pay. Um, That's just how my mind works. Uh, Sorry about that. But similarly, we have been purchased by God. Flat out purchased. That's that's what he says. He bought us. He bought our sin. He paid for it. He paid for it. It was expensive, especially yours. It was costly, (laughs) right? He paid for it in Christ. Your sin, my sin, cost God the life of his beloved son. He paid for it. We have been justified, and that is applied to us through faith. When we say, yeah, I'll take that payment, I'm going to quit trying to pay for it myself because I can't afford my sin, (laughs) but I can be justified by faith in Christ who paid for my sin. And we have to rehearse the reality of this gospel regularly because I need grace for today, right? I need to rehearse the gospel regularly because I need it today. It's, it's not something, the gospel is not something we start with. It's not like first base and then we move on to performance at second base. The gospel is the basis. It's the whole game. It's the whole arena. It's the whole thing that we're in with the Lord. To live in grace, we will have to rehearse the gospel regularly, applying it regularly to ourselves and to others. Because before I leave the service today, I will think a thought that I shouldn't. And I will speak a word that I regret. And I will interpret a glance from you in a way that you didn't mean it. I will recall a past sin and hold it against myself. I will grow in fear of some future threat. I will harbor bitterness. I will be impatient. I will act in an unloving way against one or some or many of you. And that's all before I get in my truck and drive home, right, from church. Um, I need God's grace for today, and I will need it again tomorrow. And I need to apply it liberally to myself. And I need great heaps of it for y'all. So we have to rehearse the gospel regularly. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. My friends, I want you to hear that phrase. We do not set aside the grace of God. Not for me, and not for you. The temptation is there for both. I'm tempted to set aside the grace of God for myself and say, oh no, it's, it's really what I do and how I relate to the Lord. That's where my standing is. But no, I need to preach to myself and say, no, I don't set aside the grace of God. I apply it for me. And I have to say the same thing if my temptation is over here. I don't set aside the grace of God for you. I need to extend it to you. I need to have it in great heaps for especially some of you. I need to extend the grace of God to you. I need to extend it to myself liberally and so we're going to close the service today um actually we're going to uh we're going to do our offering in just a moment and then we're going to sing a few more closing songs but as we leave today we're going to rehearse the gospel in the way that jesus gave to us which is the taking of communion uh it was funny last week or two weeks ago rather when we did communion uh first service most of you weren't there we did it backwards on accident uh, we, we had the, um, the cup distributed first and I went over to the bread as though and then I looked up and everybody has a cup and I had to kind of back up and go, I think I did it wrong. And then I thought, no, I'm not wrong. You're all wrong. It's you guys. It's all of you. So then we did it right. But it actually occurred to me, we're in a rut. If we didn't catch that and we were just going through that, it means... It has become so familiar that the significance of it has lost us. And yet God gave to us communion to take regularly so that we would rehearse the gospel in a very sensory way with our sight, with our smell, the touch, taste, speech, hearing, and even appropriating it, eating it, and taking it into our very bodies In in, in a way that we would engage with something the most. God has given to us communion so that we would rehearse the gospel for ourselves regularly. So we're going to close the service today by doing something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then we would ask you to take uh, communion with us. We're going to have four stations, one in front of each um, screen, and then two right here in the back. And there will be two people standing there. One will have uh, a big piece of bread. They will be holding it in a cloth. For those of you who are germaphobes, we've thought about you. And you are to, with one hand, go and grab a piece. Take a big old piece. We have a lot of bread. Take a big piece and dip it in the juice. And as you are taking it, I want you to say something, either out loud or at least to yourself. I am justified by faith in Christ. Rehearse that simple but glorious truth. I am justified by faith in Christ. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ at the end of the service, that's what we'll do to rehearse the gospel. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we do fight against grace, whether applying it to ourselves or to others. And we recognize from this passage, from Paul's teaching, that we need to bring all of our life in alignment with grace. So I pray, Lord, that we would live by the truth of the gospel, that we would live by it, not just die by it, but live by it, that we would extend grace liberally to ourselves, generously to one another, remembering that we are justified by faith in Christ. Help these truths to sink home so that we will not just know them, but believe them and live by them. We pray in Christ's name, amen.